Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Educating Investors Podcast. My name is Scott Peterson, Financial Advisor of Harmony Wealth Management. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode, Historical Change in Monetary Policy Framework and Its Potential Implications. I believe that educated investors equal successful investors. The goal of this podcast is to help to educate as many individuals as possible on markets, the economy, and financial planning topics. In this episode, I'm going to discuss the historical changes in monetary policy framework by the Federal Reserve on employment and inflation laid out by Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell in his keynote speech at the Fed's annual conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and the potential implications for the economy and the markets. So what were the changes that Chairman Powell laid out in his speech? The Federal Reserve updated its monetary policy framework on Thursday to better guide the U.S. inflation rate, reach maximum employment, and provide tools for future economic downturns. Let's start with inflation. The Federal Reserve will now target an inflation rate that averages 2% over time, differing from its previous goal of maintaining inflation at 2%. The new strategy is a significant change from the central bank's previous target and signals that the Fed will actively combat inflation that runs too low, as opposed to its previous concerns of prices increasing too quickly. The central bank's new framework means policymakers would allow inflation to trend above 2% for some time to balance out periods of weaker price growth. This change is targeting the inflation rate to 2% may have been one of the world's worst kept secrets with the Fed reviewing its monetary policy framework and, its, and major central banks around the globe having trouble achieving their inflation target since the Great Recession. As it comes to employment, the Federal Reserve has determined that it believes that a healthy labor market can exist without unwanted spikes in inflation. The past rulebook viewed the two as somewhat mutually exclusive. The central bank's new statement indicates that it will be more lenient in guiding inflation to allow for a healthier labor market. The new framework implies that unemployment can be too high, but never too low. The Fed used the Phillips curve in the past to help guide them in determining when to raise rates or lower rates based on full employment. The Phillips Curve is an economic model named after William Phillips describing an inverse relationship between rates of unemployment and inflation with an economy. Stated simply, decreased unemployment in an economy will correlate with higher rates of inflation. However, the usefulness of the Phillips Curve in terms of predicting inflation has come under pressure recently as we saw 50-year lows in unemployment and no significant increase in inflation. The change is that the Federal Reserve will consider not increasing interest rates based on the unemployment rate moving below the estimate for the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, known as NARU, from the Congressional Budget Office, which is one estimate of long-run maximum employment. The non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, NARU, refers to a theoretical level of unemployment at which the rate of inflation stabilizes. Inflation will neither increase nor decrease. According to the economic research from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, the NARU as of August 3, 2020 is approximately 4.13%. This nearly two-year strategy review was designed in part to put Congress on notice that the central bank was preparing to revise its interpretation of that delegated authority once again. The Fed also said it would conduct a similar formal review every five years. This was the most progressive change to the Fed's policy-setting framework since it first approved a formal 2% inflation goal in 2012 under then-Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke. All 17 officials who participated in the Fed's rate-setting deliberations on this new policy statement agreed with the conclusions of the strategy review. What do these changes mean for how the Fed looks at their dual mandate to effectively promote the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates? 
I believe that we are at the start of a monetary policy regime change from the Federal Reserve. Even though they have a dual mandate, there have been times in the past where the Fed has decided to focus on one mandate at the expense of the others based on the perceived risk of that mandate to the current economy. Paul Volcker was nominated by President Jimmy Carter to serve as the chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System on July 25, 1979. He was renominated by President Ronald Reagan to a second term in 1983. During this time, inflation was the major economic threat to growth. U.S. inflation would peak at 14.8% in March of 1980. In order to combat inflation, the Federal Reserve had to raise interest rates aggressively. The Federal Reserve Board, led by Volcker, raised the federal funds rate, which had averaged 11.2% in 1979, to a peak of 20% in June of 1981. This led to average inflation of 3.22% in the United States in 1983. However, the product of them raising rates aggressively was that the unemployment rate was rising to over 10% and leading to two recessions, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, also known as the NBER. The NBER provides start and end dates for recessions in the United States. The two recessions were from January of 1980 through July of 1980, in July of 1981 through November of 1982. Up until that time, this was the deepest economic downturn since the depressions of the 1930s and drove thousands of businesses and farms to bankruptcy and led to political attacks and some of the most widespread protests in the history of the Federal Reserve. With interest rates over 20%, home building activity practically came to a halt. People who worked in construction trades mailed two by four pieces of lumber to Mr. Volcker in protest. Auto dealers mailed keys to the cars for which they were no buyers. Farmers drove their tractors around the white marble fed building. Hover's focus on beating inflation at the expense of employment set the groundwork for a quarter century of low inflation, steady growth, and rare and mild recessions. According to NBER, we had a recession from July 1990 through March 1991, and the recession that occurred around the tech bubble from March 2001 through November of 2001. During this period, the Federal Reserve would raise federal funds rates to fight inflation and slow growth and would lower Fed funds rates during recessions or economic crises of the times, including the Black Monday stock market crash and the savings and loan crisis to spur economic growth. In most cases, once the threat was over, the Federal Reserve would normalize monetary policy. This took us up to the Great Recession where the Federal Reserve lowered the Fed funds rate effectively to zero and realized along with other central banks that they needed to do more to add liquidity and help the world's economy grow and increase inflation. So the Federal Reserve along with other central banks around the world climbed what I like to refer to as the monetary policy tool ladder. They resorted to climbing to higher and higher rungs on the ladder from lowering policy rates to providing forward guidance to initiating quantitative easing and in some cases instituting negative interest rate policies. The thought of these central banks was that as soon as they were able, they needed to normalize policy as quickly as possible, to be in a position to have room to enact the same tools in the next downturn when they came. As we came out of the Great Recession, however, they realized that coming down from the higher rungs of this ladder and normalizing policy on the way down was extremely difficult and in some cases impossible. In the United States, a zero interest rate policy was with us between 2008 and 2015, even though the official recession ended in June of 2009. Where in Europe and Japan, they never have started to normalize policy and have had policy rates near zero or negative throughout the entire period coming out of the Great Recession. 
Eventually, the Federal Reserve started to try to unwind the ultra-easy monetary policy of the Great Recession by raising the Fed fund rate from zero to a high of 2.5% between December of 2015 and December of 2018, only to resort to cutting rates again with the market turmoil that hit toward the end of 2018 and finally coming full circle and back to zero in March of 2020 during the height of the coronavirus pandemic. This shows how difficult it was to normalize monetary policy once the market and economy were used to it and receiving it. The hope for faster economic growth and higher inflation due to these policies never took hold, as data shows that the amount of GDP each dollar in new debt generated had been steadily declining. This, along with an aging demographic, lower birth rate, slowing immigration, and lower productivity should continue to lead to slower growth. While the central bank didn't increase the money supply sharply during the period coming out of the Great Recessions, banks used these funds to shore up their balance sheets and rather than creating new loans and therefore the velocity of money in the economic system did not increase, causing the inflation the Fed was hoping for. What this easy monetary policy did create was money flowing into risk assets and a record bull stock market. Now the focus of the Fed, based on Chairman Powell's speech yesterday, was that of employment at the expense of inflation. The exact opposite regime that occurred under former Fed Chairman Volcker in the late 70s and early 80s. Monetary policy will be implemented based on the long-run goal of full employment, even if inflation increases. The Fed moved employment to the forefront of its longer-run goals and downgraded inflation for formulating monetary policy basically dismissing that the fillet curve works as it had in the past and introducing a period of even lower for longer interest rate policy. The reason for doing this is because currently the gap between the current unemployment rate and NARU estimated by the Congressional Budget Office, which has never been wider. COVID's effect on the labor market have pushed this shortfall in the unemployment rate to twice the gap of 2008. This change to leaving rates lower for longer based on the Fed's targeting an average inflation rate of 2% over time could be another important tool in the monetary policy toolbox, making forward guidance more specific and credible. As former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke stated, if investors believe the Fed's words are credible, the changes announced Thursday will increase the accommodated power policy. When you go into a recession, markets will expect a longer period of easier policy, and that will in turn increase the amount of effective stimulus He went on to say that under the strategy, they will not take any step to cool the labor market unless there is clear evidence of inflationary pressure. I believe there is a good chance that they even take this further by applying a more specific inflation threshold and a qualitative description of labor market conditions that would warrant higher rates. This is important because the Federal Reserve has already climbed the monetary policy tool ladder again, from lowering rates to zero, along with continual use of forward guidance, and a new quantitative easing program. Knowing that these tools could become less and less effective and impactful the more they are used, they expanded some of the policies associated with those rungs of the ladder, including setting up facilities in partnership with the U.S. Treasury to purchase corporate and municipal debt, even though it could be argued that by doing so, that is in violation of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Could this possibly lead to the purchase of equities if necessary? Why all the trouble? Because the Federal Reserve sees what happens once you climb to the rung on the ladder that the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank climbed to involving negative rates. It was impossible for them to normalize policy before the latest global economic recession caused by the coronavirus, giving them no room to really cut rates further 
and in the meantime hurting the profitability of their banks and not achieving the goals of increasing economic growth and inflation. So what does this mean for the economy and markets going forward? In simple terms, the Federal Reserve's new strategy means that interest rates are likely to stay exceptionally low for a longer time, which should be positive for people looking for work, buying a home, or investing in stocks. In terms of employment, the central bank often raises rates when it thinks unemployment was moving low enough to prompt strong wage increases and higher inflation. However, as I stated earlier, the new framework implies that unemployment can be too high, but never too low. Borrowing costs are already near historic lows, but with this new strategy, rates on mortgages are likely to stay low. According to data from Freddie Mac, the average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage fell to 2.91% on Thursday, near its lowest level in almost 50 years of record-keeping. Finally, with the Fed extending its accommodated policy with low interest rates, staying lower for longer, this is going to increase the appetite for risk assets like stocks and corporate bonds. The harder question to answer will be if the Federal Reserve will be successful in hitting their new 2% average inflation target. Up till now, they had not been successful in hitting the prior 2% inflation target based on their preferred measure of inflation, the core PCE. In the Great Recession, there was thought that all the liquidity being pumped into the economy would have caused more inflation. What they did not realize was that you needed the velocity of money to increase in order to have that pickup in inflation. Velocity of Monday indicates how many times a dollar changes hand over a given time period. If the velocity of money remains low, inflation usually isn't a huge worry. We've had a dramatic increase in liquidity to combat the economic downturn caused by the coronavirus, but at this point have not seen an increase in the velocity of money. This would make sense due to the fact that with the lockdowns and restrictions put on consumers due to the coronavirus, they had fewer goods and services to spend their money on, which means less money changing hands in the economy. This is also shown by the increase in the personal saving rates in this country. So right now we are in a disinflationary environment. If we were going to see inflation start to pick up, it would occur after successful treatments and or a vaccine being developed and distributed for coronavirus. Even though there is a possibility of inflation picking up, we still have headwinds combating inflation. In older demographic spending less can lead to lower inflation. Also, the rise in technology and the movement of more U.S. manufacturing to countries with lower wages and cheaper production costs, as well as a recent increase in the national debt and other reasons why inflation may remain low. Based on the inflation measure the core PCE, the Fed normally looks at, which has averaged 1.6% over the past decade. To reach an average of 2%, that would mean the Fed's new target would be around 2.4%. Currently, the core PCE in the 12 months through July has increased at 1.3%. Had this new strategy been adopted five years ago, the Fed would have likely delayed rate increases that began in late 2015, following seven years of short-term rates pinned near zero. So in conclusion, the Federal Reserve has made a historical change to its monetary policy framework by targeting an average inflation rate of 2%, and the start of a new monetary policy regime change focusing on full employment at the expense of the risk of higher inflation by keeping interest rates lower for longer. The positive implications of the policy include people looking for work based on the Fed's implying that unemployment can be too high but never too low. Borrowing costs are already near historic lows, but with this new strategy, rates on mortgage are likely to stay low, which is positive for home buyers and the Fed extending its accommodated policy with low interest rates staying lower for longer increases the appetite for risk assets like stocks and corporate bonds. 
Let's take a look at this in more detail. Growth stocks, including technology stocks, tend to benefit from low interest rates as well as slow growth environment as investors look for growth opportunities. Even though the valuations of these companies in a lot of cases are stretched, these are the companies that should continue to do well in a restrictive economy due to the coronavirus based on strong balance sheets and the cash flow and earnings that they generate. International emerging markets, small cap and value, which has been left behind due to the dynamics of the coronavirus, could do better on the other side of the pandemic. The reason for this could be a lower dollar environment for international stocks due to the increasing trade and budget deficits and negative real interest rates. Smaller companies that get most of their revenue domestically would benefit as demand returns as the economy reopens. The value names will look to do better coming out of recession as the economy reopens as well. The valuations for a number of these areas are cheaper than the U.S. in growth in general. Starting valuations historically have mattered in terms of longer-term future returns. In an environment with the potential for the volatility to pick up due to a number of issues, including the spread of the virus, the election, and the worsening relationship with China, to name a few, I believe a majority of your fixed income should be in core fixed income. These would be areas like government bonds, securitized bonds, and highly rated corporates. Core bonds can provide some diversification benefits to your portfolio because they are not highly correlated to equities. Also, you have the Federal Reserve as a buyer of last resort, currently on treasuries as well as mortgage-backed securities. The Fed is purchasing investment grade and in some cases high yield debt through its joint facilities set up with the U.S. Treasury. The Fed has been able to fix liquidity issues for higher-rated companies, but if revenue slows for lower-rated companies that are already highly levered, it could provide a potential issue for them to cover the interest on their debt, which could lead to some of these lower issuers to be downgraded or potentially to default. The Fed can help with liquidity issues, but they can't fix solvency issues. On the corporate side, I would want a majority of my exposure with credit ratings of A or higher, with the risk associated with the larger amount of triple B-rated debt in the investment-grade market and the potential risk of downgrades. I believe municipals are still an area of core fixed income that still makes sense. Currently, yields on municipals are higher than those for taxable bonds, and this is before looking at the tax-equivalent yields for municipals. With the possibility of higher tax rates in the future, including income and capital gains tax, demand should continue for municipal bonds. Obviously, there are some risks with municipals currently with a loss in revenues and an increased spending due to the pandemic. However, the Federal Reserve, I believe, has learned a lesson from the mistakes of the Great Recession when the lack of support to state and local municipalities led to spending cuts to layoff and hindered the economic recovery coming out of the crisis. I believe that based on this, that the Fed will do what it can do to assist the impact on the municipalities with the hope that Congress provides some level of fiscal stimulus as well. I think the higher yields on municipals to taxable bonds is pricing in this additional risk. Due to this risk, I would look for highly rated municipals. In terms of fixed income, I will look to shorter durations based on the yield difference between shorter and longer durations being relatively narrow. The Fed has more control over the short end of the curve, and the market demand controls the longer end of the curve. With that being said, the Federal Reserve is continuing as a buyer of last resort through QE and purchasing treasuries to keep rates low. If longer-term rates like the 10-year were to move higher than the Fed feels comfortable, which could impact the recovery of the economy, the Fed could step in and potentially initiate yield curve controls to keep rates at certain maturities pegged to a certain level. Housing has been one of the bright spots in the economic recovery, and the Fed will want to keep 10-year rates lower to continue to help the housing sector. Finally, with lower interest rates and investors looking for income, dividend growth stocks should be in demand. 
investors should look for companies that have low payout ratios and high dividend coverage ratios, which should allow them to continue to pay their dividends, even if the economy continues to slow, as well as give them the ability to potentially increase their dividends over time, and in some cases at a faster rate than the rate of inflation. If you don't want to research individual companies, there are ETFs out there that you can invest in which will do this for you. There are some potential negative implications due to this change in the monetary policy framework, including an increase in the economic risk based on the fact that the Federal Reserve might end up looking through inflation until it's too late. Having effectively admitted it no longer fully understands the relationship between economic growth, employment, and inflation, the Fed still promises to decide in real time when its healthy, above-target inflation has become dangerous. If the central bank gets this wrong, it could be forced to raise rates much higher and much faster than it would want. More importantly, this could potentially lead to a loss of credibility in the markets and the Federal Reserve and its monetary policy framework. If we did enter into an inflationary period, real estate, gold, and commodities would be potential hedges for that environment. Finally, research suggests sustained low rates can dent an economy's growth potential by steering investments to unproductive uses, sustaining zombie companies, and rewarding corporate financial engineering instead of capital expenditures, which can lead to asset booms and busts. We've gone through a lot of information on the historical transformation of the Federal Reserve monetary policy framework and the potential implications, positive and negative, of these changes. As always, look at your personal asset allocation based on your goals and needs developed from your financial plan to determine if any of these implications have an impact on your portfolio and if any adjustments are necessary because of them. The most important thing for investors is to have a financial plan and an asset allocation based on that plan to help achieve your goals and needs while diversifying risk. Finally, if you don't have the time, want, or expertise to develop a plan and personal asset allocation, find an advisor that can assist you in doing so. If you're looking for an advisor, make sure that the advisor takes the time necessary to educate you about the markets and the economy and how it impacts your personal situation. Education is the only area of investing that is not commoditized. If you have an advisor or find an advisor that does not do this, look for an advisor that can because an educated investor equals a successful investor. This completes this episode of the Educating Investor Podcast. I know that time is an important asset for everybody, so I appreciate you taking a part of your day to listen. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, feel free to share this with other friends and family that may be interested. Also, feel free to check out my website at www.harmonywealthmanagement.com to learn more about what I do, as well as to find my contact information and links to my LinkedIn page and blog. The Educating Investors podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The information presented on the Educating Investors podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The Educating Investors podcast, its host Scott Peterson and his firm Harmony Wealth Management LLC, should not be held liable for any losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on the Educating Investors podcast show.